This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is David Litt, a political speechwriter and author of the memoir, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey, White House Years. He is currently the head writer-producer for Funny or Die's office in Washington, D.C., Litt started working at the White House in 2011 at the age of 24 as a senior presidential speechwriter, first to presidential advisor Valerie Jarrett, and ultimately to President Barack Obama. We began by discussing how he came to being in the business of speechwriting. Well, I did not move to Washington at all planning to be a speechwriter. Um, in probably the same way that I didn't, you know, start my senior year of college planning to go onto a campaign. But about halfway through my senior year, I caught the Obama bug and I drove out to Ohio. I worked there in in the field for the last five months of the general election. And then um, around the inauguration in 2009, I moved to to Washington uh, basically because hope and change. I mean, there was not a, a whole lot of strategy involved. I I was probably the world's worst intern for the first few months I was there at a crisis communications company. And luckily, I I got a second chance and I got a second internship. And this happened to be at a speechwriting firm called West Wing Writers. And West Wing Writers does speechwriting for uh, CEOs, for foundation heads, for celebrities, senators, you name it, all in the private sector. So without really meaning to, I had the chance to learn this skill, which is, um, you know, not totally unique. Uh, we've all sort of written things that have a make an argument before, but speechwriting is unique in many ways. And I had a chance to learn the ropes a little bit. And then a couple of years after that, I was about to go back to Chicago to work on the reelection campaign when uh, John Favreau, who was the president's chief speechwriter at the time, he said, you know, Valerie Jarrett, the senior advisor to the president, she needs a speechwriter. She hasn't found anyone. Uh, your references are pretty good. If you want, you can be the only applicant for this job. You know, want to stay here and work in the White House. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. And so that's what I ended up doing. I ended up staying in the White House for about uh, for about almost five years, starting off working for um, for Valerie and for other members of the senior staff. And then I moved on and wrote more and more for the president over time. So once you were in the office, tell me a little bit more. You started writing speeches. You added jokes in the um, foreign correspondence dinner. You started writing speeches that had anything to do with Judaism and Israel. Did you start small and, and how did it feel? Well, absolutely. I started my, my when I started at the White House, my job was to write for the senior staff and basically anybody who was not the president or the vice president or first lady who needed a speech written uh, I, I often was sort of the pinch hitter for that person, in addition to my writing for Valerie Jarrett. Over time, I took on this specialty at the White House, which I sort of considered things no one else wants to do. So, um, for example, the weekly address that the president would record every week usually involves taking a big speech and cutting it down to make it a smaller speech. Now, for that, uh, you know, people were not lining up to, to do that work because people were busy and they had done this for years. So I could say, hey, I'll do that. And generally speaking, you know, that might be a speech I would get to do. Um, The same for, you know, small videos, things like that. One of the first videos I 
uh, I wrote for President Obama was sort of wishing America a happy Thanksgiving in 2011. Um, you know, these things matter, but there there's so many other things going on that uh, most of the other speechwriters were pre preoccupied with a higher priority, and so I got to do the Thanksgiving video. So that, to a large extent, is how I how I started out writing for President Obama was just taking on the assignments that, uh, to me, were the most exciting thing I had ever done in my life. But to speechwriters who had been there for a couple of years, were you know okay, we have to do this again. Let's. It just felt like work. You had a history in comedy, so was that one of the assets that they wanted to tap you for? Um, I guess I had what in Washington passes for a comedy background. So what that meant was that I had done some stand-up in high school and I interned for The Onion for a summer while I was in college. I did improv comedy um, when I was in college also. Uh, I don't think that I was specifically brought on thinking, okay, this is the funny guy. But I do think it was generally helpful that, you know, speech writing jobs, you generally submit a packet of writing samples for the job. And I think four of my five writing samples were extremely serious and dry. I mean, one was about, you know, uh, phosphate in fertilizer. I mean, not not uh, riveting stuff necessarily, but there was also a bunch of jokes. And I think that at least um, sets you apart from other people. I mean, I think it's like any field where if you can do the sort of standard type of work, but you also have a niche, that can be very helpful. And while I was there, um, a speechwriter named John Lovett, who was running the sort of joke writing process, uh, he left in November 2011. I think it was November. And uh, once that happened, they were sort of looking for another token funny person inside the building. And, and by default, I was that person. And did, so did you feel like the pressure at times to be funny? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always uh, anything you do when you're in a job like the one that I had, there's an extraordinary amount of pressure because even if what you're doing is not the most important thing, I mean, you know, I was not the person saying, Mr. President, we really should go get bin Laden or anything like that. But even so, you feel like in some tiny way, the president of the United States is counting on you and your country is counting on you. And that adds to the pressure that always exists when you're trying to be funny, which is, you know, what if, the, what if people don't like it? Um, when we were writing jokes, we wrote, there were enough people who would pitch jokes that it wasn't like if I had a bad year, there were just going to be no jokes for the speech. But you still you hold yourself to a very high standard. And it was really I mean, I talk about in the in the book about going out to the CVS near the White House and buying a mouth guard because I was grinding my teeth in my sleep during one of the correspondence center sort of uh, joke writing process moments. And they had the cheap mouth guard for 20 bucks and the like expensive, fancy, deluxe, ergonomic mouth guard for $40. And I didn't have to think twice before going for the fancy mouth guard. I mean, it was that kind of situation. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is David Litt, author of Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. One of the things that you really wanted when you went into the White House, which wasn't uncommon, was to be best friends with Obama. And that that was I don't know if that was particular to you or if it was uh, a sentiment generally felt by many people. But I'm wondering if you can talk about that. And did that happen for you? <laughs> well, uh, as you might imagine, President Obama and I are not best friends. Um, you know, I uh, and and the what I was saying in the book was that I went into the White House, you know, thinking about President Obama, not just as my boss's boss, 
but also as this person who I think like we all do in a democracy, I felt a personal connection to the president, not um, in the sense that we had ever met, but just in the sense that this was somebody whose speeches had inspired me to change my entire life to go into politics when I never thought that was something I was going to do. And so you have this very personal connection to a, to, to a public figure. And, you know, I think all of us in the back of our minds, like who didn't imagine becoming buddies with the president of the United States, especially when that president was was Barack Obama. Um, you know, not that any of us expected it to happen, but like if it had, no one would have complained. And I, uh, I definitely did not become, you know, uh, best friends with the president or anything like that. But it was interesting. I mean, over time, I kind of got to the point where going into the Oval Office and getting notes from the president of the United States or, um, you know, discussing what was going to go in a speech became part of my job in a way that, you know, totally shocked me and certainly terrified me when I started. So as you worked your way up, you you were writing more important speeches. And one of the things you write about was that you felt inadequate a lot. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons I wrote this book, I mean, the number one reason I wrote the book was just that I had all these fun stories about times I embarrassed myself in front of the president of the United States, and I wanted to share them. But a second reason that I wrote the book was because when I was imagining what it was like working in the White House, I just assumed that everybody there always felt like they knew exactly what they were doing, that everything was like totally, you know, crisp and confident and if you got a job like that, you never worried about wonder whether or not you deserved it. And at least in my experience, but I, I'm guessing I was not alone here, uh, that was, certainly wasn't the case. I mean, I, I think I believed in myself enough that I could go into work every day and enough that I could do the job. But of course, I worried about whether something was going to turn out right or whether, you know, um, the correspondence center was going to finally come together in the way that we wanted or whether a speech was going to express what the president was hoping to, uh, you know, or, or whether I could, whether I was going to write something and send it to my boss, the chief speechwriter, and it was going to come back with one or two edits or completely rewritten. And I, um, I think, you know, a lot of the time, especially in high stakes businesses, um, or, or sort of sectors like the one I worked in, we try to pretend that, you know, uh, we totally have it under control and we never worry. But I think both of those things are true. You can worry and still be good at your job and you can worry and still believe in yourself. I'm sure, though, that, uh, you know, it was intense. I mean, you had some moments where you were writing a speech for a dinner and you were talking about reporters that risk their lives. And you you had a line in there that the president read about reporters risking their life in Syria and Kenya. And despite the fact that you had all these fact checkers, um, that line got in and then, and then talk about what happened after that. Uh, so this was in 2013. I had just come back to the white house from the campaign and I wrote this, this line. It was, the speech was mostly jokes, but it was delivered to reporters. And at the end, president Obama wanted to say something about how much he appreciated uh, a free press. And, um, you know, that's sort of one of those moments that I didn't write as a contrast between then and now, but ended up that way by accident. And President Obama said, or the line I wrote for him was, um, reporters have risked everything to bring us stories from countries like Syria and Kenya, stories that needed to be told. And I used Syria in that sentence because, you know, it's a, it's a violent, dangerous place and a, and a despotic regime. And I used Kenya mostly because it rhymes with Syria. And I remember thinking, should I 
call someone and, you know, who works in foreign policy and kind of run this one by them. Then I thought, no, you know what? I'm the speechwriter. Like, I I have this under control. I just I just got brought back to the White House. Like, let's not overthink this. And when the president said that line, it went very well in the room. But the next day, the Kenyan government saw the transcript and they were less happy about it. And so the uh, foreign minister of Kenya released a statement on behalf of his entire country um, condemning President Obama's remarks and calling on the United States to apologize. And I remember thinking, well, you know, maybe I could just apologize. But the way it works is that, you know, just because you can start an international incident does not give you the power to stop one, as I learned the hard way. And so eventually, um, a senior White House official on, on uh, not on background, but, um, you know, speaking, not named, but issued an apology on behalf of like all of us, uh, had to take time away from whatever that person was doing that was much more important and say, you know, obviously the situations in Syria and Kenya are very different. And so um, that was a, uh, a particularly scary moment. And then, of course, I, I discovered that I was... Uh, not alone in in uh, speechwriters who you know caused an international incident by mistake, or certainly um, in terms of White House staffers, where you make a small mistake and it becomes a big deal very quickly. So realizing that was one of the most important shifts mentally that I had to make in my job. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is David Litt, author of Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. What about Obama's ability to ad lib? I, I'm just wondering if you can talk about that because you you know you knew every word in every speech and and the really important speeches. It seems like from the book you would meet with him and he would make edits and then you would add them in. But how much did you see him in the end kind of riff or add his own thing when he was actually giving the speech? Yeah, it really depended on the um, on the speech itself and when. Um, and when he was speaking. So, for example, in the first term, I think President Obama didn't ad lib quite as often. Um, and that's because, or I always assumed it was because anything could be uh, taken out of context and any piece of tape can become part of an attack ad on a political campaign. So there's a extra incentive to be very cautious. In the second term, he started to ad lib a little bit more and one of the things that I always felt as a speechwriter was, you know, most speechwriters in writing for politicians, even great politicians, sort of live in fear of their boss going off script. And in the Obama White House, we were pretty lucky where, you know, when the president would go off script, that generally speaking was the best part of the speech. You know, he would say something and then that would be the part where a friend or a family member said, hey, did you write that? And I'd be like, well, you know, I worked on the speech. Um, try to dodge that question a little bit. And that was um, uh, one of the things that was pretty unique, I think, about President Obama was that because he has a writer's sensibility and because he's so precise with his language, often you couldn't really tell the difference between when he ad-libbed and when he was speaking on script. Um, For example, there was a a year, one year in the Correspondence Center, he ad-libbed like three jokes in a row and no one would know uh, if you hadn't already read the script. I mean, the, you know, only me and a few other people would have noticed that. When you were writing his speeches, sometimes there'd be rooms with, you know, 
they were, you know, huge convention centers with tens of thousands of people in a room. What was that feeling like when he would deliver a speech and read your words and people would be cheering and you were just off in the background? What what did that feel like? You know, it really depended. But it, the thing that I always thought about was the way that I felt the first time I saw President Obama speak in uh, this was in 2008. And when I was a senior, I was watching uh, one of those little TV screens that you sometimes see in the seat back of a plane where there was free cable. And President Obama was speaking after the Iowa caucuses. And I remember the way that I felt and how I could feel myself being asked to be part of this thing that I had never been asked to be part of before. I mean, I, I had cared about America, certainly in the abstract, but I never felt like a president had so specifically said, you need to be involved in making America better. And I remember that feeling of um, that I suddenly had this sense, not just of our country, but of myself, that was better and uh, that was the best possible version of myself and of America. And to sometimes, this didn't always happen, but every so often you'd feel like maybe something the president is saying in the room while I was standing in the back of the room was having that impact on another person. And in some small way, I got to be part of making that happen. And that was a really special feeling. I mean, it really did feel, uh, it felt pretty magical. When you were working on the campaign, you had, I mean, it's kind of hard to avoid in the news these days and hard not to ask you about it, but you had some some pretty intense um badgering experiences with Harvey Weinstein. He's a he's a major funder of the Democratic Party and he was having some actresses come and read for the re-election campaign, um give speeches. And he was really the one who acted as if he was calling the shots. And I'm just wondering if you can recount that or what you think about that now or you know, it, it sounds like even in the book when you wrote this before, I'm assuming you knew what was going on in the news these days with him, that he was such a bully. Yeah, I think that's the the exact way I would describe what happened to me. So obviously, um, you know, since I wrote this and since the book came out, I think the book came so the book came out September 19th. It was a couple weeks before these allegations really started. And, and um, you know, some of the stuff that's come to light that was just I mean, it's just horrifying. Um what happened to me, which I think it had happened to just about anyone I know who lives and works in Los Angeles, is I just got yelled at um, in a way that I remember thinking in this kind of out-of-body experience, like, you know, I don't think anyone's ever spoken to me like this before. I don't remember the specifics of it, but it was uh, – I, I was 26, and so my job was not to run the, the convention by any means. My job was to – make sure that um, Scarlett Johansson and Kerry Washington, who I was writing the speeches for, that their speeches came in um, under the allotted time so that they didn't, you know, it's a big deal at a convention. You don't want to push the main speaker who that night was the president out of prime time. That can be a real serious problem with voters. So, um, you know, we just had to keep everything to time. And Harvey was not happy about this. And so I get a call from, you know, his assistant who would say, I have Harvey Weinstein on the line. He wants to speak to you. And I remember thinking, really? That seems odd. But and and it was um, it didn't seem like he was really calling to discuss anything. It seemed like he just enjoyed uh, the experience of kind of belittling another person. And and what I write about in the book is that because I didn't work for him or in his industry, I sort of felt like it was I felt almost detached from it. It was kind of just like 
a strange, this is an interesting thing to be happening moment. So I think I was very, very lucky in that respect, luckier, obviously, than I realized at the time. But it was uh, looking back on it, it's one of those moments where, yeah, I do think there was that sense of bullying and that sense of being able to abuse your power. That is, uh, you know, parts of that story, I guess, are still funny. Parts of it seem a little less funny than they did when I wrote it down. Yeah, and especially because you were working for the most powerful person in the world who never treated you that way. Well, I think that's a really good point. I mean, there's a, a huge, uh, you know, many, many, many gradations between, um, you know, <laughs> types of acceptable behavior that, um, you know, so Harvey Weinstein, we now know is clearly on one end of the, you know, being a monster spectrum. There's lots of ways over to the other and you don't have to be a, a perfect person and, and always be nice to your staff, I think, to be a, a good boss or to be somebody who accomplishes a lot. However, President Obama was, and I think it's a pretty remarkable thing given how much uh, pressure he was always under, he was very, very nice and respectful to staff. That doesn't mean that he didn't hold people to a high standard. He absolutely did. But if you made a mistake, he didn't yell. He, like, he was never a yeller. And I think it's such a contrast. I mean, there's plenty of moments in the book where I did something dumb in front of President Obama, and he let me know. It's not, you know, I, I was left that encounter determined not to make that mistake again. But he didn't yell, he didn't scream, he didn't throw things. I mean, he was an adult about it. And I think that is, it, it's such a clear contrast. And I think it filtered through the whole, entire building. I mean, one of the reasons, um, you know, when I got yelled at by Harvey Weinstein, I remember thinking no one's talked to me like this before, is that with a few very small exceptions, the Obama White House tended to be the kind of place where people... They weren't always happy with each other, but people tended to treat each other with a baseline level of respect. Well, the thing, too, about um, writing for him that was probably kind of joyous with your background is that he he is a funny guy. Yeah, um, absolutely. Again, this is it's one of the reasons I don't do full time speech writing anymore, because I don't think I'm ever going to have a speech writing job as good as the one that I had, um, you know, you can write jokes for politicians for a long time and never come across someone who has really genuinely solid comic timing. Uh, President Obama has great comic timing. He is, uh, or, or, you know, we, when he would do the correspondence centers, he would always be opening for a, a comedian, you know, um, a late night comedian, usually Jimmy Kimmel did it one year, Conan O'Brien. Um, and every year the complaint was kind of like, this is so unfair because this guy's the opener. He's got really good timing. He can deliver a joke. And also he's the president of the United States. Um, that's a pretty uh, difficult combination to follow. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is David Litt, author of Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. So... A quintessential aspect, I think, of, of speeches, and it's not unique to Obama, was that you put real people in there. So when you're dealing with issues like health care, you find a real example in America of someone who is, you know, struggling. And you did in, in the book. Um, you talk about a, a woman in Phoenix and her daughter. Um, you, you find these people who always bring these big, heady concepts of policy down to the realistic level. So how important would you say it is to have real people? And then how do you find the real people? Because there's so many real people. How do you choose one? 
you know, finding the the right story can be hard. A lot of the time, the way we would do it is we would look through local news. Um, so, for example, if President Obama was, uh, you know, um, giving a speech in, let's say, Kansas City, we'd look through the local Kansas City news and try to figure out maybe there's an example here. The other thing we'd often do is talk to to somebody um, who helped arrange the speech. So, you know, if President Obama was speaking at a community college, we could talk to, you know, often the, the dean of students or someone like that and say, you know, do you have a student who really exemplifies um, either this thing that President Obama is here to talk about or represents the best of what you as an institution and what America as a country have to offer? And that was one of my favorite parts of the job was just getting to talk to people incredibly inspiring people who often don't even realize how remarkable they or their stories are. I mean, there was, there was one of the things, you know, it's impossible to spend that much time in Washington and not feel a little frustrated, at least now with the state of our politics, but it's also impossible to spend time talking on the phone with people from all over the country who are just incredible and often incredibly humble about it and not feel great about America as a country. Um, you know, and then getting to talk to people and uh, say, hey, by the way, you're, the president might mention your name, but he might not. And then sort of see the, the look on their faces or hear back from them after the president tells their entire you know, life story um, in front of the whole country. That was a really special moment. It's something I certainly miss about the opportunity that I had. And I mean, although that's, I believe, very authentic and real I assume that there's also polling numbers that show that that really works. I don't think it's a, a sense of polling like, you know, do Americans prefer personal stories or do they prefer kind of, uh, you know, some other method of communication? I think it's a, a general sense that uh, in politics and in life, we're always trying to make things relatable. And there is no one as unrelatable as a president. And that's any president, you know, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter. Um, but you know, it's not very easy for us to put ourselves in the shoes of that person because they have such a unique job. They have so much power. Um, so a lot of writing for a president is trying to, um, go from the white house and the presidency, which are these extraordinary institutions to speaking to people who are more like the, the voters and connecting with voters. So I think it's just, it's a technique that works for that. It's also something that I always got the sense that President Obama personally enjoyed doing because I think uh, he was motivated by the stories that he would hear and sometimes that he would tell in speeches um, that, you know, there's something that is really inspiring about the people you you talk to when you get a chance to just meet inspiring people as part of your job. Um, And and it's it's what keeps you going. Uh, You know, certainly if you're in public service, um, you need that uh, reminder of who you're fighting for. Otherwise, things can get a little off. And I think that's one of the the reasons that sometimes you hear someone talk about a politician is, you know, they've been in Washington too long. I don't think that means that they physically lived in the District of Columbia for too many years, but just that they've lost touch with the stories of the people who they represent. And I think President Obama was not the kind of person who wanted to do that. And, and as a speechwriting team, I mean, we really took pains to make sure that those stories were an important part of the speech. 
So in your book, you sort of have all these anecdotes and these fun stories, but you you end with the serious about, you know, you went into this because you wanted to see a better a better world and you felt like Obama wanted a better world. And you had, um, you know, stories about the passage of gay marriage and the the um, fights that Obamacare and the hits that it took in the Supreme Court, but still prevailed. And, and you ended with, you know, the explanation of that things are are better and there is a sense of of positiveness in the end. And I'm just wondering if you want to comment on, on in general of the writing of this and how you structured this and if it's different than a than writing a speech, writing this book. Well, writing a book was totally different than writing a speech, which I didn't realize when I started. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to write a book and I met with people about it and they said, well, you know, it's really hard. And I said, well, yeah, I'm sure. But what I really meant was like, oh, I'm sure it'll be easy. You know, I wrote speeches for the president and um, everybody else was right. And I was totally wrong. Um, One of the things that I felt writing the book was this challenge of writing one big thing. I mean, I was used to writing in these discrete chunks, but the idea of writing one thing that has a beginning, middle and end that is that is much, much longer than any speech. Um, that was a, a real challenge. And the other thing that I think was a challenge in writing the book, but one I, I'm um, happy that in the end I decided to take on, was that I started writing the book in 2016, early 2016. And I assumed, as did most people, that Donald Trump was not going to be the president of the United States. And after he won, um, it felt like what would had before been sort of a almost entirely humorous book, uh, took on a little bit of a different um, urgency, where it seemed like, uh, in addition to keeping in all those stories about, as you mentioned, you know, almost setting the president's hair on fire, which uh, I I did, and which I certainly wanted to talk about, um, I also wanted to talk about uh, what I learned about public service and what I learned about um, being part of a White House that really believed in uh, fighting for people without power and using power on behalf of of those who didn't have much. And to look back and say, you know, obviously we don't know how everything's going to end, wind up with America. I mean, that's always an open question. That's part of this whole experiment in democracy. But to look back on these eight years and say, what did they mean and why did they matter? And I think it was um, a a more nuanced question and a question more worth answering after the election because it wasn't so straightforward. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is David Litt, author of Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So this passage is actually, it's from the very beginning of uh, In a Sunburned Country, which is Bill Bryson's book about um, traveling through Australia. Flying into Australia, I realized with a sigh that I had forgotten again who their prime minister is. I am forever doing this with the Australian prime minister, committing the name to memory, forgetting it, generally more or less instantly, then feeling terribly guilty. My thinking is that there ought to be one person outside Australia who knows. But then, Australia is such a difficult country to keep track of. On my first visit, some years ago, I passed the time on the long flight reading a history of Australian politics in the 20th century wherein I encountered the startling fact that in 1967, the prime minister, Harold Halt, 
was strolling along a beach in Victoria when he plunged into the surf and vanished. No trace of the poor man was ever seen again. This seemed doubly astounding to me. First, that Australia could just lose a prime minister. I mean, come on. And second, that news of this had never reached me. Um, and, and I love that particular piece just because he's writing about political issues. He's introducing you to a new place, but also you learn so much about him in that same moment. And, you know, I don't know that that's something I managed to do in my book, but it's certainly something I tried to do pretty frequently. I, I'm always impressed by how Bill Bryson can do that. Can you read something that you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft? So this is a passage that I wrote about the fact-checking process in the Obama White House. And uh, it's one of those things that changed substantially after the election. As if most of this wasn't processy enough, I had to run it by the fact-checkers. The idea of a White House that checks facts, the idea of a White House that believes in facts, already seems like a relic of another time. Yet less than six months ago, as I write this, there was an entire research office responsible for making sure that the president's statements were true. Our researchers saved me from countless embarrassments. They were invaluable, not just to the president, but to democracy itself. Hardworking and unfailingly humble, they were model public servants. Also, they bothered the shit out of me. And the reason that I, and I, I can go on if you want, but the, um, the reason that I rewrote that, as you might imagine, is that you know, it made me rethink. I think the election made me rethink lots of things, but one of them was the role that our fact-checking office played, where I go on to talk about the way that speechwriters and fact-checkers had this sort of sharks and jets relationship where, um, you know, we were all friendly personally, but we drove each other a little nuts. Uh, but looking back on it, I wanted to be honest about that, but I also wanted to capture um, what I think was important to democracy about what they were doing, whether or not I agreed with it in every moment, or uh, I would assume whether or not they agreed with how I was going about my job in every moment. And I wanted, I didn't want to totally ignore the fact that this had been a frustrating part of my job, but I also didn't want to uh, ignore the fact that the reason it was so frustrating was because of this bigger, more important thing, especially in light of the current political situation. Where do you write? You know, I write, generally speaking, in my uh, office, which is my spare bedroom in my apartment. But I've sort of written from everywhere. I mean, I was on the road a lot while I wrote this book. I was telling stories with The Moth, the uh, the, the storytelling um, series and, and NPR show. And so one of the things I sort of forced myself to do was try not to be too precious about only writing in the, the perfect space. And what do you do or work? Where do you go to get away from writing? <laughs> that, that's a good question. I mean, I was a speechwriter uh, until 2016, and then I was working on a book, and now we're talking about this. So uh, I don't know yet. Um, I'm hoping to have a good answer for you in the next few weeks, but it's been pretty all-consuming. Um, you know, every so often, I'll, we'll try to get as far away from the computer and, and internet as possible, but that's harder and harder. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, the first person I always show my work to is my fiance, Jackie. And, um, that's partly cause Jackie's in the book. So I didn't want, uh, you know, if there was something I wrote about her that she didn't want in there, I wasn't going to leave it in. But more than that, I mean, even when I was writing speeches or jokes in the white house, I would, uh, show her that and sh show her what I was working on. And she's very good. She just has a very good barometer for something isn't right here. And I find, um, this is not one of the main reasons we're together, but we do make a good team in this way. She's very good at just identifying something is off. And then I generally, once I've accepted that something isn't working, I usually can get back in there and fix it. 
but often I don't know where the problems are unless uh, I show them to someone else. And she's very, very good at um, finding that, not to mention being, you know, like a person I love. That's important, too. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, I think it's hard. I think everybody deals with rejection, but only a little bit. I mean, rejection really is painful. I don't know that there's a way around that. To me, the most important thing is just to be working on lots of different ideas at once, um, especially in those moments when you don't know what's going to come through. So that uh, on the theory that, okay, I'm taking enough shots that rejection is supposed to happen, that, you know, I only need to be batting whatever 300 in order for this to be a success. And I think that makes it different. The thing that really scares me is when you're doing one thing at a time and you're putting all your eggs in one basket and then rejection feels com complete in a way because it is because you've set it up that way. And what is your favorite word? So so I don't have a favorite word, but I um, certainly talking about in the book how some words can be uh, funny and some are not. So in, in jokes, for example, I talk about how um, I tried to use a joke that had bin Laden as part of the joke. And uh, some of that was just because bin Laden is a funny word for a joke. And um, it got changed mostly because unbeknownst to me, they were in the process of the bin Laden raid at the time. But even so, I'll, I'll stand by the funniness of that word and by its, you know, using those those hard consonants in jokes. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was David Litt, author of Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.